0: Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of a silent prayer to make sure we're in fellowship. Scripture teaches that as believers, we still continue to sin. I know that surprises some of you. but uh, And that sin can never cause us to lose our salvation. At no time can we ever jeopardize our position in Christ because we did nothing to get it, so we can't do anything to lose it. It's all by grace. But when we disobey God... We are out of fellowship, our rapport, our fellowship, our walk with God the Holy Spirit is breached, and it is not until we confess our sins, which means simply to admit or acknowledge our sins to God the Father, when we do that, we are instantly forgiven, we are cleansed of all unrighteousness, and we are restored to fellowship. So we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we are ready to study the Word, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that we have your word to go to because it encourages us and strengthens us. It is your word that reveals to us what truth is. And it teaches us to think correctly. It teaches us to evaluate the circumstances of our life from a framework of absolute truth. And it it's through your word that we mature and grow spiritually. We learn about who you are and what you have done for us. And we learn how you're, you have provided every solution for every problem that we face. And there's no problem that we face in life that's too great for your grace, and that as we go through life we face various tests, trials, opportunities to put into application that which you have told us so that we can see your grace, your power in our lives. Now, Father, as we study your word through the uh, teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit, we pray that you would help us to understand these things and that they would challenge us in terms of our uh, position within your family as members of the royal family of God. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles to <coughs> Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. It'll be a minute or two before we get there, but that is where we will start with the first verse that we look at. In fact, you might hold your finger there wherever else we go because several times tonight we will be coming back to uh, Romans chapter 12. We're at the end of Hebrews, or <coughs> not the end of Hebrews 10, but the end of the teaching section in Hebrews 10 that began actually in Hebrews 7.1. Hebrews 7.1 through Hebrews uh, 10.25 is the uh, teaching section before we get into the warning section, this key section in uh, the book of Hebrews. And we've come to the verse that talks about the responsibility that believers have toward one another, and in reference to, uh, based on verse 25, in reference to, the body of Christ, our responsibilities to one another and to meeting uh, together as a body of believers and why that is important, why it is significant. Uh, Hebrews 10.24 says, Let us consider one another in order to stir up or in order to uh, provoke. could be one way of translating that. In order to incite, to action, to encourage uh, others to action, um, specifically in terms of love and good works. And these two words are simply chosen as a s- summary of the whole uh, spiritual life. One thing I want to come back to, though, as we look at this, as we started last time studying the doctrine of one another, the verb that I- that uh, <clears throat> that we have here is uh, katanoeo, I'm getting distracted in my own mind. The last two days I've been in a Greek in a week class. It's a first-year Greek class, but they're teaching a new form of pronunciation based on findings in the last and studies that have been done in the last 15 or 20 years where they have a pretty good idea of how historical Greek was pronounced. By historical Greek, that's what they're referring to, Koine Greek, as opposed to Attic Greek, which was prior to that and uh, uh later byzantine greek and then uh modern greek modern greek is quite different there's been a simplification of the language over the last uh 2000 years or so so that uh vowels specifically tend to flow towards an uh, either an a or an e sound and so whereas you might have uh several endings vowel endings that you have in some some greek words E-I is one ending that's a double vowel or a diphthong. You also have an eta ending and some others that were distinguished in pronunciation in uh, the Koine period and even in the classical period. In the modern period, that disappeared. Now, the significance for that is that uh, uh, the subjunctive mood, which used an, uh, an eta ending, which would be pronounced more like an A, and the E-I ending, which I was taught was pronounced the same way, would not have been that way in the, in the Koine period because you have to be able to hear the distinction in the sounds to know whether somebody's talking in the indicative mood or in the subjunctive mood. And what happened in modern Greek is when those vowel sounds came together as one, modern Greek actually just dumped the subjunctive mood it fell out because you couldn't hear the difference anymore between the indicative mood and the subjunctive mood. Now I thought that was interesting, but other people may not. And um, but they're using this new pronunciation system, so I've been sitting there all day listening to a whole new way of pronouncing Greek words. And so now when I look at a Greek word, it's like confusion sets into my head. And okay, how do I say that now? But it's been uh, and it's been a uh, it's been interesting. Uh, they're, they're, this guy is teaching. I'm going to, uh, to to sort of observe his method, but he's teaching first year Greek in basically 22 hours. Two hours last night, eight hours today, eight hours tomorrow, and uh, four hours on Saturday morning. So it's rather rather intensive. And I'm brain. I was brain dead at one o'clock this afternoon, and I know Greek. And I'm looking at these other people in there who didn't even know the alphabet until last night. I'm thinking, how in the world are these people even assimilating this? It's got to be like drinking water out of a fire hose. It just completely overwhelmed. So anyway, when you look at Hebrews 10.24, and we have this initial verb, katanoeo, it is a, an intensified form because of the prefix of the kata, which is the uh, preposition that is attached to the root verb noeo, which is the word for thinking or thought, and it is related also to the word froneo, which will... Uh, see tonight you hear the noeo that's your your root Nous is a word that you've heard before that's the uh, greek word for mind so you move from nous to noeo and you see the, the the same root one's a noun one's a verb moving from mind to thought or thinking so you have this group of words like froneo, katanoeo uh, words like that, which indicate different ways of talking about thinking and thought and concentration. And the reason I'm bringing that up is when we get into the Romans 12 passage as well as the Ephesians 4 passage that we'll look at under the first couple of new points that we hit tonight, there's those those commands in relation to how we are to treat one another within the body of Christ are surrounded by verbs related to thought and thinking, emphasizing the fact, once again, that the essence, the core of the Christian life, has to do with thought. It doesn't have to do with emotion. It doesn't have to do with how we feel about God. It has to do with thinking uh, in terms of the way God thinks and that the word of God is given to us so that we can learn to think about God's creation the way he thought about God's creation, his creation, and the way he designed that creation. And when our thinking lines up with the way God created and made things, then we are uh, aligned with reality, and we're thinking in terms of reality. But when we think differently, when our thinking is divorced from the creation as he's made it, then we're the, the further we get from the way it, things are as he defined them, the more we get into a fantasy world, and we're just making up our own ideas of the way reality is and where we become divorced from reality and therefore we become more and more irrational and so at at the very essence when you think about thought systems such as uh, other worldviews marxism uh Eastern religions Buddhism, hinduism uh, the, the various forms of mysticism uh you think in terms of uh, humanism, secular humanism, atheism, these various world views, they all are going to have elements of truth in them because they're living in god 's world, and so they have to to some degree operate on truth as it is, because otherwise they would be walking off the edge of buildings and uh, falling to their death and things of that nature. So at least 50%, I would think, to 70% of any thought system is going to have to fit with reality. But it's the other ten, fifteen, twenty, thirty 15, 20, 30% that is what distorts the rest of it into a different way of of looking at things. And so the more error there is in the thought system, the more divorced from reality people are. And so often I get the question from people, how in the world can people believe that? Well, you're asking for a rational explanation based on the absolute truth of God's word for people who have rejected God's word they're suppressing truth and unrighteousness, operating in a fantasy world, which by definition is irrational. So how can we ask for a rational explanation for irrational behavior? We can't, we, unless we assume what the irrational person has assumed in terms, their, uh, in terms of their worldview. So ultimately, everything comes back to thinking a certain way, and that thinking has to fit, has to fit a standard. So we are to think about, that's what the word consider means, to think, uh, means to um, contemplate, to meditate. It means to give careful and conscious thought to something, intentional thought to something. It's not just something that, oh, well, this idea just sort of occurred to me. Maybe we ought to do this. No, it's the idea of sitting down and giving uh, intentional thought to a particular issue. And here it is that we are to consider, give thought to, a course of action, how we can uh, stimulate, excite, challenge, stir up people to a course of action, in other words, pursuing spiritual maturity. So that led us into looking at the various passages in Scripture that talk about the believer's responsibility to other members of the royal family of God, royal family of God being a term to describe believers in the Lord Jesus Christ who are part of the body of Christ, whose Scriptures say are adopted into God's family at the instant of salvation. We are... Uh, adopted into his family we are heirs of God and so there is a unique privilege that we all share as members of the royal family of God we've all been given the same resources we've all been given the, we've all been the, the same uh, beneficiaries of God's grace in terms of what Christ did for us at the cross we are all indwelt by God the Holy Spirit We all benefit from the filling of God the Holy Spirit. We've all been given certain spiritual gifts. We are all equally valuable as members of God's royal family, and so there is a code of conduct, a code of behavior that is mandated by the word of God on all members of the family. This is how members of God's family behave toward one another. And it is a family relationship, and so if you have positive views of family, some people don't because of their background, but if you have positive views of a solid, healthy family, then you understand something about the kind of relationship that believers should have to one another. We are members of the same family. We're not strangers. We're not foreigners. We are all members of God's family, and only believers are members of God's family. So the first uh, principle we looked at last time was that the word for one another translates the Greek word alilon, which simply means to refer to one person towards others within a group. It is one to another or one another. Uh, Most of (coughs) New Testament context are addressed to congregations, so it is speaking to how uh, people within a congregation as the uh, micro-representation represent, of the body of Christ, the uh, physical or concrete representation of the body of Christ uh, before us, as well as to others outside of a local, local body of believers. So the idea is how believers within these congregations should treat other believers within the congregation. And by extension, this then applies to all other believers. And I pointed out as a second point, that the most common command for one another is to love one another, which is stated 15 times in the New Testament. And I believe that all of the other one another's that we have in the New Testament define different aspects of what it means to love one another. Loving one another isn't generating certain kinds of feelings toward other believers. It's not that idea because sometimes you, you don't even know another uh, person sitting across the congregation and, and, uh, uh, generating some kind of feeling toward them is based on having some sort of, uh, I- interaction with them. It could be a, if it's a negative an- interaction, it might produce negative feelings. If it has a positive interaction, then it would produce positive feelings. But the issue is divorced from feeling and it's based on, based on character. Yesterday or the day before, I was uh, uh <clears throat> went out to a, lo- a small local nursery that I was told about and met a very interesting guy who uh has this this uh this nursery small uh small nursery that uh uh you know nobody would probably ever pay much attention to and he's very knowledgeable about plants and all kinds of things and he's a believer and he came over we bought some plants and he brought them delivered them to the house and uh, as he left, he said, next time I see you, I want you to answer a question for me. He said, some, he, he said I know God loves me all the time. But there are some times when I just don't feel like I'm very lovable. Now, how, why does God love me? And see, that's a question a lot of people ask, because they are often basing their concept of love on, number one, emotion, and number two, my behavior or their behavior. And what the Bible teaches is that God's love for us is not based on anything that is in us, anything that we've done or haven't done. It's not based on our failures or our successes. It's not based on our obedience or our disobedience, our morality, our immorality, our talents, our gifts. It's not based on any of those factors because, frankly, everything that we have is from God. It is based solely and exclusively on who he is and on his character. And that's why that love never changes. It never increases. It never decreases. Uh, As a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are not only recipients of God's, uh, what we might call his unconditional love or sometimes impersonal love. His unconditional love emphasizes the fact that it's not based on conditions of behavior on our part, uh, the fact that it's impersonal does, means that a personal relationship is not necessary because God doesn't have a personal relationship with unbelievers, yet God loved the whole world in such a way that he sent his son, uh, his unique son, to die on the cross for all unbelievers. So it's not based on a personal relationship. It is based, though, on knowledge and on integrity. And so when we come to these these commands that we are to love uh, one another uh, as Christ loved the church, it means that we have to understand something about integrity, and we have to understand something about the basis for that love, and the basis for that love for us in terms of that horizontal relationship between one believer and another believer is not based on either who I am as the one loving or the other person as the one who is loved because my character has flaws and their character has flaws and there will be failures on both sides and there will be days when you wake up and you don't feel like loving anybody. Now, I know two people in this congregation, I don't really believe that's true, I've never seen that. Maybe their husbands or wives could tell me, but we have a couple of people here that I'm just not sure they have a sin nature, but that's another story. <laughs> um, but for most of us, we have days when we wake up and we just don't really believe that, that we can love anybody. We, frankly, don't want to love anybody, and that's a good day just to stay home and not, not interact with anybody. And other days we wake up and we're we're feeling very good and we're in a good mood and we feel like we can uh, love other people and we just love everybody. But see, th- there's this flux that takes place based on all kinds of different things that are going on with us biologically, emotionally, and other uh, spiritually that affect that. So there's that ebb and flow in terms of in terms of emotions. But for love to have the kind of meaning that God's love has, which is the basis for the kind of love we are to have towards other people, it has to be based on something that doesn't change, something that's not in a state of flux, something that is not mutable. And so the love that we have for other believers is not supposed to be based on our own character, or even our own spiritual maturity, it must be based on an understanding of God's character, who he is, and what he's done for us and for others through Christ on the cross. That those other people that we look at, sometimes we look at and say, you know, I just can't understand why God wants me to love them. Look at what they have done to me. They uh, They have betrayed me. They have abused me. They have mistreated me and in, in, in sometimes in just horrible horrible ways how in the world can God expect me to love that person that is beyond my capability well that's right This kind of love, as I pointed out last time, is part of the fruit of the Spirit, and it's the Holy Spirit who produces that in us as we grow and mature. But as part of growing and maturing is understanding who God is and understanding the nature of his love and the fact that in terms of his justice, you, who have trouble loving that unlovable person, are just as obnoxious and unlovable towards the righteousness of God as that person you can't love uh, is to you. And so we we get in this high and mighty state of arrogance where we say, I can't really love that person. Look at what they've done to me. And we've missed the whole point. The point is God loved them just as much as he loves you. And as far as God's concerned, you're not any better as a dirty, rotten, fallen, depraved sinner than they are, and you're no more deserving of God's love, and I'm no more deserving of God's love than anybody else is. So we have to understand the nature of that love that we are to emulate. Jesus said we are to love one another as I have loved you. And so that puts the standard Onto a more stable, an immutable foundation. Now, this command to love one another, as I pointed out last time, pervades the uh, New Testament. John, Paul, Peter each mention this, and uh, and it's based primarily on Jesus giving the new commandment, John thirteen thirty four and thirty five, which is the main <coughs> verse we looked at last time, and then I looked at all of the other verses related to loving one another. But the the basis, the pattern, the model is to understand how God loves us. And that, that takes a lifetime to understand as a believer because that is the whole process of studying God's word and learning about observing the patterns of God's behavior towards his creatures. In the Old Testament, we have the adoption of the nation Israel as God's, Precious possession, and so we look at how God deals with Israel in love, and see that automatically challenge most people's uh, understanding of what love is, because they would think that if somebody loves me and they did to me what God does to Israel in terms of discipline, then how can that be love? That's because people have a a deluded, shallow, superficial, emotional view of what love is, and it doesn't have any room for true righteous judgment or discipline from the framework of a of a righteous god who has complete integrity and and complete knowledge so love is not just this this warm fuzzy emotive sentimental uh, hallmark card feel good kind of thing which has come to characterize what most or uh, what many americans what our pop culture uh, and visions as as love, it is much more complex and much more profound than that, so the more we study all through the scripture and we observe god 's patterns of behavior towards those he loves, then we come to understand what love is all about. Same thing when you get into the New Testament and the ultimate example of god 's love is. Uh, John 3.16, God loved the world in this way, that he gave his unique son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Romans 5.13, God demonstrates his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said no uh, greater love has any man for another than that he give his life for his friends. So that's the pattern for understanding what love is and it ultimately comes it starts with God it doesn't start with those kind of feelings that you had when you were 15 years old had your first crush on some boy or some girl and it, it's not related to the kind of love that you experienced in your home it's not related to any other sort of human experience but that's always always the frame of reference for understanding love for most people is something within their experience for the believer we have to get out of our experience and go into the Word of God, and there we come to understand what real love is all about. Well, love involves, as I pointed out, the third point the third point for one another has to do with encouraging one another. A key verse there was Romans one twelve where Paul puts as an apostle, puts himself in a position that he is encouraged by the the believers in the church at Rome and he will encourage them, so there is this mutuality uh, within the body of Christ. Also, 1 Thessalonians 4.18, we are to comfort one another with these words, specifically speaking about the uh, fact that Jesus Christ will return, and at some future time uh, with the rapture, there will be a reuniting of those who have died physically with those who are still alive. First uh, Thessalonians 5:11 says the same kind of thing: comfort each other and edify one another. We'll see that in another category. Comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. So here we have these words based on the word group para uh, para We have sum para kaleo. Sum is a uh, prepositional prefix, which intensifies the uh, word, there means soon means together with, so it emphasizes again the um, coming together with uh, one another. And then First Thessalonians four eighteen and five eleven just uses the word parakaleo. It has that idea of encouraging, challenging, uh, helping, aiding, assisting one another. Now we come to the fourth point. This is why you're in Romans chapter 12. We are members of one another. Now that's a difficult concept for us to get into our heads, that we are members of one another, because that directly challenges a certain mentality that we as Americans have built into the way we think. Now we've studied this in the past, that every Every person born in whatever country you're in, whether you're, I'll use China or India versus the United States, whatever country you're in, whatever that worldview is, you grow up from the time that you are in the cradle and you are trained by various factors to think about reality a certain way. Each culture has its different, uh, its different patterns and if you grow up in a pagan culture an eastern culture such as china or india where ultimately uh, ult- where ultimate reality is just this sort of nirvana nothingness that's out there and ultimate reality isn't personal and it isn't uh, it is infinite but it's not it's not personal then uh, ultimately death is just being absorbed into that uh, impersonal uh blob that 's out there, and you lose all sense of self consciousness, so self is not a um, a category that is important. but if you're born in the United States of America, self is very important. each individual is emphasized, and we have a value based on our history, based on our culture, to emphasize the importance of the individual and the individual's talents and abilities so that they can have the freedom, uh, historically at least in the United States, have the freedom to choose to do whatever they want to with the talents and abilities that God gave them. And, they, and to have real freedom, you have to be free to succeed and you have to also be free to fail to the degree that you uh limit the freedom to fail uh through government cushions you also have to limit people's freedom to succeed you, and we're seeing great examples of that uh right now in our in our country as uh we're not letting uh, various uh, corporations fail and experience the uh the results of their bad decisions, their foolish decisions, and their, in some cases, criminal decisions. And then on the other hand, we're coming along and we're we're going to now limit, or there are people who think that we ought to limit, the degree to which people can be compensated in certain jobs and certain positions uh so you cut off the motivation to succeed at some level because you think somebody thinks it makes too uh, somebody else makes too much money and so you have the government coming in and wanting to limit freedom but historically in the US there's been this emphasis on individualism and this was really built into our national psyche uh during the years of uh the of the frontier where people would leave everybody behind, and they might be 16, 17 years of age, get in on a wagon train, and they might never again see their family, and life for them was going to be what they made of it, and they were going to head out into the uh, west, and they were going to uh, make their own life, and it was up to them and their own resources, and they were going to uh, pull themselves up by their own bootstraps, and so this emphasis on uh, the ind- individual and uh, the individual's ability is stressed highly uh, in our culture. Well, when you come to passages like this in Scripture, it it becomes difficult for us to identify this sort of corporate thinking uh, that you have—that we are members of one another, that there is a uh, interrelationship and interdependency uh, among believers in the body of Christ. Because we're trained as Americans to think in terms of independency, whereas you have people from some other cultures and they only think in terms of the village or they only think in terms of of the family or the group. And so everything that they, every decision they make is made on the basis of, of a family and the impact it has on the family. They never really think of it in terms of themselves as an individual. And so these are different ways in which the culture around us and the worldview that we that we absorb from teachers, peers, uh parents, professors uh through through life and how that shapes our thinking. So look at uh look at Romans 12:1. Just to give you background on this before we get into a couple of passages here. Paul says I beseech you or I challenge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Now, he uses the word body there because he's talking about the whole person. He's avoiding uh, some sort of Greek type of thinking that would say, okay, I'm, gonna, I'm going to give my body to one thing, but I'm going to give my mind to something else. He's using the body because it stands for the whole person that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, uh, holy, uh, that means set apart to God, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. The idea in the Greek there is that this is the our, our service as part of believers once we're saved to serve God. Now, he describes the basis for this and how this is done in verse 2, and it involves... Uh, Two commands, a uh, a negative and then a positive. First of all, he says, don't be conformed to this world. Now, that's hard for us because everybody in this room was significantly conformed to the thinking of the culture and the world around them before they were saved. I was saved when I was six, but the problem that we have is that when we're when we have a sin nature, that sin nature has an affinity for the characteristics of, of any cosmic thought, any worldview, a uh, pagan worldview. And so by the time we're three, four, or five years of age, we have already absorbed a mindset that is counter to the Word of God because the only option we have as a spiritually dead sin or dominated by a sin nature is to adopt thinking that is contrary to God. So we are are reared in, a, in an environment where we have a soul that is oriented to antagonism to God and conformity to the spirit of the age. Literally, that's the word there for world. It's not cosmos, but ionos. But instead, we are to be transformed by... The renewing of the mind. It is thinking, that's where it starts, because that's the problem. Our thought forms, as well as the thought content, is characterized by paganism. Now, that really gets people sort of twisted inside out if you start thinking about how you think. It's very difficult to think about how you think, because uh, it's sort of like a fish being in water you You don't know what it's like to be in air because you've always been surrounded by water and as a as a fallen sinner, your thinking has was always shaped by a pagan worldview of one form or another and characterized by sin and so to think in terms of you know, those, those structures that, that were basically embedded, adopted, absorbed into your thinking before you were saved is extremely difficult because that forms the habits of your mind. It's it structured your mind long before you were conscious of how you were thinking and what you were thinking. I had a seminary professor that once said, it's hard enough for most people to think, but it's almost impossible for most people to think about how they think. And that's true. And it takes a lot of uh, of effort and training and teaching and consciousness and conscientiousness to think about how you think. And there are people in this world who never do think about what they think in terms of the content, much less how they think. But you can think the wrong way and have right thoughts. It's like the saying that a right thing must be done in a right way. But a, a wrong, a right thing can be done in a wrong way? Well, a right thing in terms of a morality system can be done in a wrong way in terms of a thought framework. So you have some great moral principles in some uh, cults. Take example, uh, Mormonism. They emphasize the family. They have a strong emphasis on marriage, a little distorted with polygamy, but we won't get off on that tonight. Um, but they have understood certain principles about. Uh, what we would call divine institution number one, which is individual responsibility, divine institution number two, which is marriage, divine institution number three, uh, which is, which is family. They understand that. But it is encapsulated within a way of thinking that actually distorts all three of those. And so at the surface, it looks like they've got the details right, but because it's, it's in a, a web, that is distorted, th- those details really aren't aren't right. They're trying to do a right thing the wrong way. And a right thing done the wrong way is wrong. So a right thoughts, thought in a wrong framework is wrong. Maybe you never thought of it quite that way before. And I can tell for some of you I've already lost you. So let's get a little more concrete and we'll look at the word here. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind... That you may approve what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And the main thing I want you to notice, and you can circle or underline that word "mind," because it's emphasizing thought. And the word there for in the Greek is the the word "nous," which just is the standard word for for the mind, for the place where thinking takes place within the soul. And then in verses three through eight. He's going to make his first application. See, what's happened in Romans in terms of this letter is the first 11 chapters dealt with the righteousness of God in terms of the unjustified sinner in the first three chapters and how they become justified in chapter 4, reconciliation of the one justified in chapter 5, 6 through 8 is how the justified sinner is supposed to live, 8, 9, I mean 9, 10, and 11 deal with how God's justice relates to his previous promises to Israel. And in chapter 12, verse 1, he says, Therefore, in light of God's righteousness and his justice and what he has done to justified sinners, how then are you to take that? All this heavy doctrine that I've taught, been explaining for uh, 11 chapters, how do you take that and put it into application? And that's how Paul normally normally handle things. So he comes to the therefore in 12.1, and now he begins to get down to what most people would call real good practical uh, application. And so the first, he sets it up in terms of changing the way you think in verses 1 and 2. And then in 3 through 8, he's going to apply that in terms of this new relationship that we all have with one another as members of the royal family of God. And he's going to build that in relationship to the, using this whole image of a body as a, as a metaphor, that we are part of that body, and just as each part of our physical bodies has a different function and a different purpose, and none is, uh, some may be more obvious in terms of its significance and importance than other parts, but all of it is important. You know, many of us are... Uh, uh, came through and uh, grew up in a time period when we were taught that tonsils and uh, the appendix was were vestigial organs you all remember that, and they weren 't important at all we'd just take them out and uh, I came along just about the time they stopped doing that, and so I still have my tonsils. I begged doctors uh, when I was in college take them out, please. nobody would ever do that. Uh, because what they discovered later is the, both the appendix and the tonsils have something to do with the immune system and taking care of toxins in the body and things of that nature, and they're important. They're not just uh, insignificant, leftover pieces of evolution. They're, God has an actual reason and purpose uh, for tonsils and for for the appendix. So every body part is important. It just has different functions, and just because... Your function isn't that of the brain. Your function is that of the little finger or your function is that of the little toe and, or the big toe. And Without the right toes, you have trouble with balance, other things of that nature. Uh, Paul is going to use that analogy to talk about the different gifts that, he's, that God has given to, the, uh, to each believer within the makeup of the local body. And that means that everybody's important. And we have to think in terms of two things here. I want you to think in terms of the overall universal church, the universal body of Christ. That's all believers through time. That's every believer from uh, the time of the first day of Pentecost when the church was birthed, when the Holy Spirit came, in Acts chapter 2, all the way to uh, the rapture. And every believer, every person who trusts in Jesus Christ all through that time are part of that body of Christ. Now, some are dead. They have already lived and they've died and they've gone to be with the Lord. Others have not yet been saved. Some have not yet been born physically. They will at some future time. And every single one has been given a spiritual gift and their function is vital to the body of Christ. But some believer who lived in... Ephesus, in the third century, whose name we don't know, is just as important to the body of Christ as you are, but not at the same time. Now, what I'm doing here, I'm really twisting your brains tonight. What we're going to do is we're going to talk about time, and then we're going to talk about space. And I'm going to draw an analogy between the time layout and the space, spatial factor. The time, I'm showing you that God just didn't give, he he gave certain gifts at the very beginning. Apostles and prophets were limited to the foundation of the church, Ephesians 4.4. But all of the other gifts are fully operational all through the history of the church, so that in Every time frame in the 3rd century, in the 4th century, 5th century, all the way up to the 21st century, there are always believers who have the gift of leadership, the gift of mercy, the gift of uh, pastor, teacher, the gift of evangelist. Uh, they're, They're spread out diachronically, that is chronologically down through the ages. At the same time, God looks spatially in terms of time segments, for example, the first part of the 21st century, and he's He's going to uh, distribute the spiritual gifts across that same time period as well as spatially. And by that I mean in terms of the, a local church. So that we not only talk about inter, uh, the spiritual gifts in terms of the universal body of Christ, throughout the last 20 centuries. But we're also talking about the fact that in local assemblies, God is going to give a distribution of spiritual gifts. He's not going to have a local assembly over here that only has the gifts of evangelism and pastor-teacher, and then this assembly over here has maybe one person with the gift of pastor-teacher, and everybody else has the gift of helps or, or leadership or administration there's going to be a spread of these gifts. So if you look at West Houston Bible Church, we're going to have a congregation as members of the body of Christ that are going to have a spread of spiritual gifts, whatever the proportion is that God believes is important for us to have. We're going to have some with the gift of helps, some with the gift of mercy, some with the gift of leadership, some with uh, uh, gifts of giving, and these are all important for the function of this localized body of believers. You go to uh, some other congregation, they have the same thing. Those gifts are important to the function of that localized body of believers so that the gifts are operational and significant not just for the total universal body of Christ, but also for each individual local body of believers. And that means that every single believer in the localized version of the body of Christ that meets at West Houston Bible Church is important to the function of that body. That there's no one here that is uh, not important or significant for the function of of the body. So when... People are not present or they're not involved or they just come and and sneak in at the last minute and leave right away afterwards and they're not part of the body. Not only does the body miss the opportunity of being ministered to, edified by their spiritual gift, but also that person misses out on the opportunity to be involved in serving that local body of believers in terms of the spiritual gift that God gave them for the purpose of serving in that local church. So maybe that gives you a a greater understanding of the importance and the role that we all play within the health of that body. Now of course you have people within a local congregation that have different levels of maturity. So you have some believers that are more mature and so their gift is more evident, more operational. You have others who have who are less mature and so their gift is not as obvious and not as operational, but it will become so as they grow and mature. So that's some background to help you think through the next couple of verses. So in verse 3, Paul says, for I say through the grace given to me, that's a reference to his apostolic gifts, uh, at, which is involved in giving revelation from God. For I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think more highly, the of himself is just added for clarity in the in the English, uh, not to think more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly and that doesn't mean with the absence of alcoholic beverages the word sober there has to do with objectively in terms of reality and the only way you can get a the terms of reality is when you are uh, have the word of god in your in your thinking so we're to think honestly about who we are not with either a false humility where we're saying you know I really can't do that and you know you can but you just don't want to, want it to appear as if you're promoting yourself. Or on the other hand, uh, always uh, promoting yourself in terms of an overt ar- arrogance. Pseudo-humility is just as arrogant as overt arrogance is. So the scripture says we are to think objectively and accurately about who we are. And we can only do that from when we're evaluating ourselves from an objective standard. Uh, like the Word of God. So we're not to think more highly than we ought to think, but to think soberly or think accurately, objectively, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. What that indicates is that there are different proportions of how God distributes the spiritual gifts. Some person may have the gift of pastor-teacher, but he has, he has three quarts. Another person may have the gift of pastor-teacher, and he has three bushels. Another person may have the gift of giving, and they have a couple of gallons. And somebody else has the gift of giving, but it's only a quart. And we've all experienced that. We have listened to pastors who have just obvious, tremendously gifted by God. We have been under and heard others who we know have the gift of pastor-teacher, but it's not as... Uh, remarkable as someone else. So there's difference of degrees of distribution, which is what uh, Paul refers to there. And then verse 4, he says, For as we have many members in one body, that emphasizes uh, the distinction and importance of every individual. We have many members, but there is one body of Christ. We are all part of a greater whole. We have many members in one body, But all the members do not have the same function. And then in verse 5 he says, So we being many, once again talking about the, uh, the, the many individuals, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Now that is a... If you stop and think about that, that is an important concept that we have lost, that we are members of one another. We do not exist as individual Christians existing in isolated islands, totally separated from other believers. Now that runs counter to the kind of thinking that characterizes uh, American individualism. I'm not saying that there's not a place, and a role for thinking in terms of people's individual ability, uh, individual abilities and their own self-reliance. But in the body of Christ, that is not the pattern. Uh, the pattern is that we are members of one another and there is an interdependency in the body of Christ, from one member to another, because we're designed as a team. That's probably the best analogy that, that most of us can comprehend. We're like a, uh, like a Super Bowl Dallas Cowboys team, where, back in the 60s and 70s, where every player worked well with every other player. And it was like a well-oiled machine. Every part was important. And when and every part functioned individually, but it the whole team was successful only when everybody worked together, uh, worked together as a whole. You see the same kind of thing in any sort of of team operation. You can't have one person, one element exerting himself or uh, elevating himself as being more important than others. They all work together. So we are many. Uh, scripture says one body in Christ and individually members of one another. And then uh, Paul goes on to describe seven different spiritual gifts in this particular, uh, this particular passage. And um, before I move on, one thing I didn't uh, highlight, but it, back in verse 3, um, for I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you not to think, more highly of himself so you're emphasizing the word thinking again here it shifts to the word uh, uh, power for neo, I believe and that is uh, or hooper hooper for hooper for which has to do with an em, it's emphasizing the thinking the concentration not to think more highly than he ought to think again we have the word, but to think soberly. So three times in that one verse, there's an emphasis on thought, the importance of accurate, objective thinking. And so that then becomes a part of how the individual members interface with one another. And then starting in verse verse, uh, 6, there's a list of various spiritual gifts. Now, none of the lists that we have in Scripture, I believe, are exhaustive, of the spiritual gifts they are representative and in this list we have prophecy ministry or service to to the local body of Christ uh, teaches, the teacher and I think there's a difference between someone who is a gifted teacher and someone who is a pastor teacher the pastor teacher is one who has a responsibility towards a congregation, and the pastor emphasizes the leadership aspect, because it's the, based on the word uh, for shepherd, and that's what a shepherd did. He had a responsibility for leading and taking care of a flock of sheep. And so the gift of pastor-teacher is someone who has a, a, that gift of leadership to oversee a congregation and take care of a congregation, and he does it primarily through teaching. But that's different from someone else who may have a gift of, of teaching. I uh, have studied under some great teachers in my time uh, in seminary education. Tremendous academics, tremendous knowledge, but not necessarily men who would make good pastors because they didn't have that sort of leadership gift, but they had great abilities to teach. There are people in every congregation who have the ability to teach and can teach in uh, Sunday school with kids, can teach other adults, but they're not a, they don't have that gift of pastor uh, teacher. So you have the gift of teaching. You have the gift of exhortation, which is really to uh, challenge, it's that word uh, kaleo again, to exhort, to challenge, uh, to uh, comfort, to encourage, Uh, the gift of giving, uh, the gift of leadership with uh, diligence, and the gift of mercy. These are the seven gifts that are listed here in Romans chapter 12. And then just as we wrap up, the other verse that supports this is over in Ephesians chapter 4. So turn with me to Ephesians. Right after 2 Corinthians, you have Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. Ephesians 4.25. Now, once again, you get into a section that emphasizes thought, and this begins in verse 17. Now, just one other point. In Ephesians, Paul follows the same kind of pattern that he followed in in Romans. He has more of a teaching, instructional, doctrinal, theological section in chapters 1, 2, and 3, and in 4, 5, and 6, he gets into what most people today want to call practical things. But for Paul, there's nothing more practical than theology, and so it, all practical things start with understanding who God is and what God has provided for us in salvation. And in, starting in chapter 4, he starts drawing out the implications of this for our behavior. And I'm just going to read through these verses and emphasize a couple of things before we get to the uh, verse 25. Paul says in verse 17, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. What's he saying? Don't be conformed to the world. Same, same thing he said in Romans 12 too. Don't be conformed to the spirit of the world. Uh, having their understanding darkened, verse 18 describes their thinking, their understandings darkened, they're alienated from the life of God because of ignorance that's in them. Once again, that's a thought concept. Uh, Because of the blindness of their heart, who, being past feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ. What's learning? It's thought. It's changing the way we think. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust. What's he saying? He's saying don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your of your thinking, which is verse 23. Be renewed in the uh, spirit of your emotions. Is that what that says? No. It says be renewed in the spirit of your mind. It's thought. change the way you think. And that changing the way you think is integral to putting on the new man, which was created according to God in the true righteousness and holiness. That's not talking about salvation. That's talking about living in light of who you are now in Christ. Therefore, conclusion, verse 25, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. So neighbor there isn't the unbeliever living next door to you. Neighbor there is, he's using that as a term for other believers in the body of Christ. We are to speak truth with other believers because we are members of one another. There is this interdependency, inter uh, relationship that every believer has with every other believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we are to exercise um, in terms of that that relationship. So we are to live out our lives on that on that basis. Now the next point we're going to get to next time, I just covered one point tonight, next time we'll get to the fifth point which is give preference to one another in honor. Now, we're going to go back to Romans 12 for that. And that's why I spent so much time on the context because we have three verses in Romans 12 that deal with the uh, the behavior that we're to have towards one another. So this, of course, will flow out of what he said about humility and not thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to think and this will lead to the application of the principle that we're to give preference to one another in honor. And we'll come back and start there uh, next Thursday night. Let's bow our heads and in closing prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to be challenged in terms of our uh, mutual relationship with each other, that this is predicated first and foremost on the fact that uh, God the Father loved us in such a way that he sent his son to die on the cross for our sins. And by coming to understand that love, then God the Holy Spirit will use that to build in us a kind of love that we cannot manufacture on our own uh, toward one another. And as we study this, we come to understand what that means in terms of our interrelationship within the body of Christ. Father, we just pray that God the Holy Spirit will use this to transform us more and more into the character the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.